All right. Uh, so everything you need to know about human morality in 20 minutes, let's go. Uh, so first, what, what is morality for? Uh, what problem does it solve and how does it go about solving it? That's part one. Part two, bugs. How does morality go wrong? And then finally, fixes. What can we do to, 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 to make better moral decisions, especially the kinds of moral decisions that we're concerned with here? So part one features. Uh, our story begins with Garrett Hardin's classic tragedy of the commons. For those of you who are not familiar, it goes like this. So you have these herders who share a common pasture, and they ask themselves every so often, should I add another animal to my herd? And these are rational, self-interested herders straight out of Robin Hanson's economics department. Uh, and, and they say, well, sure, uh, I add another animal, I get, I get more, more, more money at market, and you know, they're sharing this pasture, so the costs are pretty low, so I'll add another animal, and they think I'll add more, and I'll add more, and if everybody does that, then eventually the pasture looks like this, and it can't support anyone's animals. And so this is the tragedy of the commons, and it illustrates the fundamental problem of morality and really the fundamental problem of social existence, which is the tension between what's individually rational and what's collectively rational, the tension between me and us. And I think, for reasons I can't fully elaborate on, that this is the fundamental moral problem, that morality is really about solving this problem. How do you get people to, at least to some extent, care about us instead of just me so that we can reap the benefits of cooperation and have a nice lush green pasture instead of one that's all dirt and no animals? Um, so how does that work? Uh, well, so now we need to go inside the mind, inside the brain. And my preferred metaphor for sort of overall architecture of human decision-making is this camera. So this camera uh, has these automatic settings here. So you have your point-and-shoot landscape mode or portrait mode on the one hand, and it also has a manual mode. So the nice thing about having this kind of design where you have these two different ways of taking photographs is that it allows you to navigate the trade-offs between efficiency and flexibility. So the point-and-shoot settings are very efficient, but they're, not good, they're, they're, they're only good for what they're good for. Whereas manual mode, uh, you can do anything with it, but you have to know what you're doing, you're more likely to make a mistake. And if you have both of these things, then most of the time when you're just taking ordinary photos, you can point and shoot and it works pretty well. But on those occasions when you need to do something a little bit fancy, then you can put it into manual mode. And so you can have the best of both worlds if you know how to use them. And I think that that's the essence of making good decisions, knowing when to rely on point and shoot, your automatic responses, your intuitions, your emotions, and when to put yourself in, in, in manual mode, when to think in a more flexible, rational kind of way. Um, so I think the core of human morality is fast thinking, and specifically emotional thinking. And you can think of it as dividing our moral emotions into four quadrants. We have uh, positive emotions, negative emotions that we apply to ourselves and that we apply to other people. So positive emotions that apply to ourselves, we might be motivated by compassion or love or friendship, positive feelings that make us care about other people and not just me. We have negative feelings that we apply to ourselves. Uh, that is, I would feel terribly ashamed or guilty if I were a bad herder who took too much of the commons, right? Um, and we can have positive emotions that we apply to other people. So gratitude, if you're a good herder, then you'll have my, 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 my uh, goodwill. And negative feelings that we apply to other people, anger, contempt, disgust uh, for people who, who, who break the rules. And these different kinds of feelings are essentially designed, they play the role of giving us the ability to motivate ourselves and other people to not just care about ourselves, not just uh, me, but care about, uh, to, to care about the group as a whole. And I think that's, that's, that's the core of what morality is about. It's emotions that enable us to reap the benefits of cooperation by making so that we're not all about me and at least sometimes we're about us. So to illustrate this 
dynamic between the fast stuff on the one hand and the slow on the other, we can put the tragedy of the commons in the lab. This is known as the public goods game. This is work done with David Rand and Martin Novak. Uh, the way the public goods game works is everybody gets an allotment of money, say $10, and you can keep all of your money or you can put it all or some of it into a common pool. The experimenter doubles it and then divides it equally among all four people, let's say, if there are four people playing. Now, if you do the math, the way to come out ahead, at least in a single round, is to keep all of your money. And the way to make the group do as well as possible is to put all of your money in. What we wanted to know is, is there an intuitive response or a more controlled, uh, slow, slower response, or is it just all one thing? People just have their preferences and implement them. And so to do that, we had people make these decisions under different conditions. But first, we just watched people as they made these decisions and looked at their reaction times. And what we found is that, in general, uh, at least in some samples, the, the faster people go, the more likely they are to contribute. So the high numbers up here, uh, th that these are the people going fast tend to contribute more, and the people who are going slow tend to, tend to contribute less. Uh, consistent with the idea that it's an intuitive automatic response that's making people be cooperative, that's making people be good herders. Uh, a controlled experiment, if you put people under time pressure and make them go fast, they contribute more. You ask people to slow down and think about it, and they contribute less. And, uh, and this is not true in, 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 in all places at all times, as I'll explain, but it at least shows that more automatic intuitive responses can make us be, uh, can, can be driving pro-social behavior consistent with what I told you before and with a lot of other evidence. This is just sort of one piece of the story. Okay, so what about the slower side? Uh, well, if you want to see the tension between automatic and manual mode, the great place to look is in moral dilemmas. I've spent a lot of my research career studying these things, and I'm sure some of you at least are familiar with trolley dilemmas like this one for the uninitiated. I'll go through it and a bit of the psychology. So the trolley is headed towards five people, but you can hit a switch that will turn it away from the five and onto the one. What's going on? Well, part of you thinks five lives versus one. That makes a lot of sense. And here there's not much of an emotional response. And as a result, most people say that this is at least an okay thing to do. Footbridge case. Now you can push this big person off of the footbridge and onto the tracks. No, you can't jump yourself. Yes, this will work. Uh, and, uh, and, and even under those unrealistic assumptions, uh, uh, people tend to say uh, that it's wrong to push the guy off the footbridge. So what's going on? Well, they have the thought that I understand that it would save more lives if I did this, but you have an emotional response that makes you say, no, that's not okay. And so as a result, people t typically end up saying no here. And you can think of these as aligned in certain ways ways with, with, with moral philosophy. So we have the utilitarian approach that says go with the numbers in both cases. And you have a Kantian or deontological approach that says sometimes there are things that you shouldn't do because it violates somebody's rights or something like that, even if it would, if it would, it would promote the greater good. Um, now there's a lot of evidence over the last 10 or 15 years supporting this dual process, fast and slow picture of moral decision making, particularly using these dilemmas. I'll tell you about a recent experiment done with Amitai Shenhav, uh, where in, in this experiment, we asked people to do three different things. We said, sometimes just tell us what would be the utilitarian thing to do, what would produce the best consequences in a dilemma like this. Other times we said, don't tell us what's right or wrong, just tell us which action do you feel worse about. And then other times we asked them to do what we normally ask them, which is make an all things considered decision about which is the better thing to do. And what you see here is in, in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which for present purposes we'll just call manual mode, uh, you see more of that when people are just making that utilitarian judgment. When people are asked just to rate their feelings, you see increased activity in the amygdala, which we can think of as an emotional alarm system. Uh, 
a crude summary, but good enough for, for present purposes. Uh, and if you ask people to make an all things considered judgment, then you see more activity in a part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Some of you will recognize this as the part that was damaged in the famous case of Phineas Gage. Um, and what seems to happen here is that you have an emotional response to the action in the amygdala, and that feeds forward to the VMPFC, which weighs that response, and in a dilemma situation, weighs it against the utilitarian judgment that you should do the thing that's going to save more lives. And that balance, those weighing of those two things in this place, is what produces the overall judgment. If you damage the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, as in Phineas Gage, modern-day patients like that, they tend to make more utilitarian responses. They'll say that it's okay to push the guy off the footbridge. Drugs can actually influence people's responses to these things in different ways. If you give people citalopram, which has the short-term effect of boosting the relevant emotional response, people are more likely to say that it's wrong to push the guy off the footbridge. If you give people lorazepam, which is an anti-anxiety drug, you get the opposite effect. So this is just a little sort of taste of the kind of research and the things we've learned about these competing uh, psychological and neural processes that are at work in, in responding to these dilemmas. Another question, where does that emotional response come from? Part of the story, you might think, is you imagine this scene in your mind, and then as a result, your amygdala goes, ah, and you end up saying no. And that seems to be right. So with Eleanor Amit, we did an experiment where we interfered with people's visual imagery. We gave them a visual memory task, the one with the shapes that you can see. Um, or we gave them a verbal one. The verbal one had no effect, but if you mess with people's visual imagery while they're making these judgments, then they end up being more utilitarian. And the idea is that it disrupts the movie in the mind, and they don't respond emotionally to it as much, and as a result, their, their, their judgment is changed. Um, another question you might ask is, how do we represent the value of different alternatives? Uh, in this study, also done with Amitai, we, we had a setup where people could, you could save one person for sure. You're on this rescue boat saving a person who's drowning. And then you get a call saying you can go in this opposite direction and save more people. And one thing you'd want to know is, well, how many more people can I save? And you might want to know, how many, what are the odds of saving them? And uh, we looked at people's brains while they're making these judgments where they have to take into account both the magnitude, how many lives, and the probability, what are the odds. And... To make a long story short, what we find is that people are representing the value of these things using the basic mammalian reward mechanisms. The same mechanisms that a human or, or, or a monkey is going to use representing the value of food or sex or anything else. And this, I think, will become important later when we get to the part on bugs. But for now, to summarize a, a lot of what we've learned from the last 10, 15 years about how moral thinking works, I think we can say there's no distinctive moral faculty. There's no ethical subroutine a like commander data has in his head. And I think this, this, this poses a real challenge, for example, for those of you interested in artificial intelligence, if you want to make ethical machines, you might have to solve the problem of general intelligence before you're able to do that, at least if you want them to make moral decisions uh, like humans. But that's a topic for another time. And the reason why I say that is, what I've shown you in the last few slides is all of these very general mechanisms, applying a rule, reasoning, having an emotional response, imagining something, representing the value of something in the context of a decision, these are general purpose brain mechanisms that do, do the same thing in other contexts and that are playing this role in morality. And so I think the way to understand morality is there's no special moral stuff in your brain. Uh, in, instead, what, what makes morality distinctive is the function that it serves. And you can think of morality, the concept of morality as being like the concept of a vehicle. Right? A sailboat and a motorcycle are both vehicles, but the mechanisms are very different. A motorcycle is more like a lawnmower than a sailboat, and a sailboat is more like a kite than a motorcycle, but they're both vehicles because of the function they serve and not because of the mechanisms that allow it to, 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 allow it to be served. And I think the same is true with morality. It's very general mechanisms for the most part, um, but they're doing this distinctive thing, that is enabling us to reap the benefits of cooperation and not be completely selfish. Okay, so how can these things go wrong? 
Uh, and when I say wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing my own values to bear on the problem. But I think at least with this group, you're likely to share them to a large extent, and you can judge for yourself. So I think uh, coming back to sort of Hardin's parable of the commons, this is my sequel uh, to, to, to Hardin's parable. Uh, over here, you've got this set of herders. And they solve the us versus them problem by saying this is all about us. So this is your communist herders who say not only are we going to have a common pasture, we'll have a common herd. Uh, and that way, we don't have this me versus us tension. Now, this doesn't always work out so well uh, in practice, but it's a strategy for solving the me versus us problem. Another way to do it is to, to have your free market herders here who said, we're not going to have this common pasture anymore. We're going to privatize the pasture. Everybody has their own herd. And our cooperation will consist in our respecting each other's property rights. It's another way of solving the problem. Now, these different tribes on either side of this forest, they pray to different gods. And those gods might tell them different things to do. They have different rituals, different answers to questions about who's allowed to be a herder. What happens if your sheep get sick? Are we going to have health insurance for them? Can you defend your sheep with an assault weapon? All of those questions that define the terms of cooperation, they can differ from tribe to tribe, even if those tribes are in their own way cooperative. So now what happens when, this, when, 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 when one hot, dry summer, the forest burns down, and then the rains come, and there's this lovely pasture in the middle, and both tribes look at this and say, well, that's a very nice pasture. And they want to move in. What rules are going to govern the new commons, the new pastures. I think this is the modern world in one goofy slide. Uh, that is, basic moral problems are about me versus us within a group, within a herd. And this is the kind of stuff that I think Robin was talking about. But modern moral problems, to a large extent, are about us versus them in the sense of either our interests versus theirs or our values versus theirs. And those values can differ on a lot of dimensions. And I think that when we're dealing with large-scale problems, multi-tribal problems, and problems where people have competing values, this is where the kind of moral thinking that we're designed for within the tribe tends to break down. So let me give you some examples. So uh, Benedict Herman and colleagues did a version of the tragedy of the commons, the public goods game, in cities around the world. And they found three basic patterns in terms of how people play. So on the one hand, you have places like Copenhagen uh, and Boston, uh, where people, right from the start, they put a lot of money in, and they do this round after round, and they can punish people if they don't like the way they played uh, by taking money away from them. Uh, and in places like Copenhagen, people put a lot of money in right away. They say, I'm a reasonable person. You're a reasonable person. We'll all do the cooperative thing. And they do, and they work, walk away with a lot of money, and those are rich countries. Um, and, and then you have places like uh, uh, Melbourne and Chengdu, uh, and Seoul, South Korea, where people are a little wary at first, and they don't put quite as much in. But over time, the people who cooperate, they punish the people who don't. And by the end, it looks like lovely Copenhagen, and people are walking away with a lot of money. Um, and then you have places like Riyadh and Athens and Istanbul, where people don't put a lot of money in, and then it stays flat. People don't put, and, and even at the end, people are walking away with very little money. And the, the people who did this, they said, why, why, why are you, oh, so one thing is what they found is that in these places, people, sometimes the people who didn't cooperate would punish the cooperators. And they said, why, why would you do that? And they said, well, I don't like this whole thing. I don't know who you are. I don't know who these people are. This whole thing just, just, uh, just bothers me. And that reaction, that antisocial punishment reaction, is the best predictor of who's cooperating and who's not. And you might notice that you've got Athens way down here uh, in, in this corner, where people are very wary of cooperating in this kind of antiseptic public space. In other places, people just say, sure, we can all get along. We can all put our money on the line and do well together. So these things are highly culturally variable. And people, depending on their cultural upbringing, have different instincts about who to cooperate with. And it's not that people in Athens are not nice. They're very nice. 
their sphere of trust is smaller. And that makes a very big difference on the new pastors of the modern world. Um, a case you'll all be familiar with, this is the fa famous Peter Singer problem updated by Peter Unger. You're driving along and there's a guy who's bleeding by the side of the road and he says, please take me to the hospital, I might lose my leg. And you say, yeah, well, I don't want to get blood all over my upholstery, maybe somebody else will take it. And most people, not just effective altruists, think that there's a problem uh, with, with, with doing that. But different case, you can give money to people on the other side of the world, save their lives, you know the story. Uh, and there, most people say, well, that's optional. So the question is, why, why do we feel this difference? So Jay Musin and I wanted to turn this thought experiment into an actual experiment. And we did a version of this. To keep things short, I'll just say that in one version, you're close to where the people are in need. There's been a terrible typhoon, and you can donate to the relief effort, but you're in your little cottage up, up in the mountains overlooking the coast, and you can help them that way. And in this particular sample, which showed a particularly strong effect, I should add, 68% of people said you have an obligation to give randomly ask a different subset of the, of, of the subjects, what if you're at home and your, your friend is just giving you a live video feed, but you're not actually there? You know what your friend knows. You can help just as much by donating online. Do you have an obligation to give? Half as many people say that. Something about thinking of it as over there, which is probably about thinking about it as not a member of my tribe in some indirect sense, makes a very big difference. Is that buggy? Well, I'll leave that for, for, for to you to decide. Uh, Another, going back to Amitai's experiment about representing value with our basic mammalian reward system. One thing that a lot of people have observed is that when it comes to saving lives, the more lives you can save, the less each additional one matters. So you get this diminishing returns in terms of people's judgments. And in a sense, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. Why should the hundredth life you can save be worth any less than the first life that you can save? Um, and why would we be that way? Well, remember what I told you, that we're, we're applying our basic mammalian reward system to attaching value to these things. And if you're a rat or a monkey, the things in your life that you care about are things that, you can, that, that, that diminish in value. You can only eat so much food, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and so our, this, is, this framework of diminishing returns may be built into our basic mammalian valuation system. And then we take that and apply it to something that it was never intended evolutionarily to be applied to. And we end up having this situation where we say, well, these lives are worth a lot, and these lives, because there are so many of them, are worth less. Uh, quickly, back to trolleys and footbridges. Again, most people, so 31% of people will say that it's okay to push the guy off the footbridge, and that's actually a high number. Most people won't. But instead of pushing, if you make it a trap door that you can open like this and drop the guy onto the tracks, then it doubles to about 60%. So something about the nature, the directness of the action, that makes a big difference. Um, contrast this with having large numbers. So work with me on this case. Trolley headed towards a box of explosives that's going to, uh, that, that, that will blow up a dam and flood a city and a million people will die if you don't push the guy off the footbridge. Give people this case. And more people say that it's okay to push to save a million lives. But the effect is about the same size as going from pushing to hitting a switch. All right? So something like a million lives is worth something like the difference between are you doing it with your hands or are you hitting a switch. That, to me, seems a bit buggy. Perhaps you'll agree. Um, okay, so what can we do to fix these bugs. Um, so I told you that morality is essentially a set of emotional responses that enable us to solve the problem of me versus us, to enable a bunch of individuals to get along as a group within a tribe. Well, if we want to get along as a group of tribes in the modern world where we have different groups with different values and different opportunities, then we need something like a meta-morality. If morality is about letting individuals uh, work together, then 
A meta-morality is about letting different moralities work together at, at, at a higher level. And that's going to have to be a manual mode phenomenon. It's going to have to be a slowly thought thing, at least at first, because our gut reactions are all about life within the tribe. And I think the first metamoralists uh, were, were Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. This is one of my favorite examples, I think, of thinking ahead in manual mode. So I won't read the whole quote, but basically this is one of the first defenses of what we now call gay rights. And Bentham says, you know, my gut reaction is that this is not okay. And most people here, their gut reaction is that this is not okay. But if what really matters is human happiness, what is the problem, right? And with that thought, detaching himself from his fast thinking, I think he leapt ahead two centuries in moral, in, 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 uh, in, in moral time. And Bentham and Mill and others, I think, got it right on so many different social issues because of their willingness to question their gut reactions when it came to these particularly modern problems. So how did they do this? I think that the, the essence of their philosophy is that they developed a common currency of value. Because moral, modern moral problems, as I said, they're all about trade-offs. They're all about competing, about resolving uh, tensions between competing values within a tribe, but most importantly, between tribes. And I think you can think of their answer as, as the answers to two different questions. So who really matters? And their answer is, ultimately, it's everybody equally. Everyone counts the same, which is, in a sense, a very natural idea, but also a very radical idea. I mean, even today, even the most altruistic people don't live up to that, but we can embrace it as an ideal. And what really matters, and this is the part that's, that's most controversial, they say what really matters is the quality of human experience, human happiness. And the thought is that when you take all the things that matter to people, they ultimately trace themselves back to somebody's experience well-being. Controversial, but, but plausible, uh, at least for many things. And that leads them to the, to, to, to the principle that you should be maximizing happiness impartially. At least that would be the ideal. Um, and I think that this metamorality, whether or not you go in for full-blown utilitarianism, I think it's really metamoral thinking that's driving the enterprise of effective altruism. And you can think of it as applying certain fixes. So first thing I think that this set of ideas is fixing is tribalism. Is that we're not just going to help the people here because they're here or the people we're close to. We're going to say, let's assume that everybody's life is equally valuable. Where can we do the most good? And if that means crossing tribal boundaries in order to do the most good, then so be it. Morality doesn't have to be local. And we fix the innumeracy. We say, look, it's not just a matter of what makes you feel good or what makes for a great story. Uh, each of those lives count. Even if when you, when you double a, saving 1,000 lives to 2,000 lives, it doesn't feel any different. That really is twice as good. And we're going to take the numbers seriously. And more generally, I think what's going on is that we're applying a common currency of value and a common currency of facts. And the common currency of values of what I said before is that you have to have a metric that says, OK, what does the most good? What, how are we going to compare different ways of, of, of helping people? That requires a common standard. And I think the standard that, that people in this room generally tend to apply is something like what's going to improve people's lives as they experience them, treating everyone equally. And then the other thing, which I didn't talk about much, but is implicit, I think, in, in, in everything I said, is that an, we're applying a common currency of, of fact as well. That is, we're looking to science to tell us what's actually going to work and what's not. And instead of going with hunches or going with tradition, we're saying, well, let's actually look at the observable data, the things that you and I can both see, and use that as our basis for deciding what's going to actually do the most good. So that's the big picture. And if you want a longer version of it, there's my book. And I want to thank the National Science Foundation for supporting a lot of the scientific research that I described and members of my lab, some of whom I've mentioned, uh, who actually did the work. So thanks.